The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, we talk with Beaver Theodosakis, founder of Prana. We talk about how he and his wife Pam built the company from their garage to selling it to Columbia Sportswear Company in 2014. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today is Beaver Theodosakis, founder of Prana, um, among a number of other companies that we'll we'll talk a little bit about as well. Life's a Beach, Bad Boy Club, um, is it Spy Optics, um, as as well as a board member for the Outdoor Foundation. Are, are you currently still in that role? Yeah, yeah, I've been, still uh, serving on the Outdoor Foundation board. Um, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. It's great uh, what you guys have going there, and I'm happy to contribute to it. Yeah, it's it's been uh, fun to talk to you over the. I feel like it's been the last few months. We've been going back and forth and trying to find a time to to sit down and and have this conversation. But um, you're so good to to send some of the early Prana catalogs to our outdoor recreation archive, and those have been incredible to look at. Um, I wanted to dive in and just learn a little bit more about how you got to where you are um, and some of the origins of Prana and, and also what you're doing since Prana. Um, but what, what is your earliest connection to the outdoor, uh, just the outdoors first and foremost, what was your first connection to the outdoors? Um, first of all, I want to include my wife because she's co-founder. Yes. You know, we started the company together. Um, so Pam, Theodosakis also, and we both uh, discovered climbing. Uh, a friend took us climbing in 1991. First time mm-hmm. before our sports were, motorsports, many different skiing, different things, but um, rock climbing, went to a bouldering area in, in Southern California. And um, just the first time we both touched this rock, you know, this beautiful piece of granite that was there for a million years, you know, it just felt so grounding and just to ascend and just be so present. And we just were just in a different place and just like immediately fell in love with climbing. Uh, simultaneously, we were just learning about meditation and starting to practice yoga. And this is about 1991. Um, so we, we got into those two activities and we're just really enjoying. They really changed our outlook on life and, and how simple and um, literally down to earth, you know, these things were. Um, we started to look around uh, in the marketplace to say, hey, maybe we could make some apparel for this category uh, that would make sense. And looked around, did some research and, and found that there was an opportunity what were were either of you interested in other outdoor activities prior to discovering discovering climbing? Like, were you outdoor people before that moment? What? Yeah, definitely outdoor. I mean, I 
I met Pam in a motocross race, so it's mm-hmm. not really outdoor, but, you know, grew up racing motocross as a youngster. And, um, but yeah, we were fishing, we were, um, you know, did plenty of boating, canoeing, you know, kayaking, things like that. Um, hiking, of course, biking, um, but never, uh, never really touched a piece of rock like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just our whole, our whole tagline born from the experience came from that moment when we were so present and, you know, all that mattered in the world is reaching for that next hold, you know, not, nothing else mattered. And just, it got us in, in a meditative state. And at the same time, you know, with, with yoga and meditation, learning about breath, learning about presence of mind, stillness, uh, it kind of all came together right there. And that's really, like I said, born from the experience or 30 years later, you know, still using that tagline. It really was from those moments. Have you since had that experience with any other activity or has it been purely yoga and climbing for, for either of you? Well, for me, uh, it's been, a ch- it changed my life and kind of lit the spark. And now I approach everything that way. Mm. I, I, um, you know, fly fishing, uh, I can be in a, in a zone for four or five hours, you know, just, just completely in a trance, uh, Pam with her horse riding, you know, she's a, um, equestrian writer. So same thing. And she's got an animal there that, you know, weighs 10 times more than her. And so it's a, a special attunement with a, with another being too. So um, she's, she's playing in high States there also, but um, even the simplest things, you know, uh, weed whacking, you know, washing dishes. I, I think we just learned um, whatever you're doing, do it all the way. You know, mm-hmm. really that's what born from the experience is. It's just being just fully present and uh, it's okay to let your mind wander in whatever daydream, but when you're, when you're in activities, I'm, all, I'm also a pilot. So flying, you know, that's another form of meditation. You're, you're really into all the senses are alive and switched on. So um, to answer your question, yes, pretty much in everything now. Wow. When, when did you start to recognize, I guess, product as being, well, something that, first of all, someone had to create, right? I think a lot, I guess, prior to even my role working in this program, working for the university, I, I don't know if I gave the products that I interact with any second thought. Like I didn't think of, oh, someone had to create this, right? Um, was there a moment for you um, you know, whether it was that experience climbing or prior to that, did you ever have an interest in product or have a moment where you recognize, Oh, people do this for a living. People make this stuff. Well, you know, I had some experience in the eighties with uh, the surf brands, um, mm-hmm. Life's a beach and bad boy club started with a few buddies. So I had some apparel background in that. And that was more, you know, it was the eighties. So it was a little more about show, a little about, you know, standing out and being different, you know, with, with uh, Life's a beach, it was, you know, skull and crossbones and, you know, 80s kind of stuff that we were put on apparel more for shock value. Um, but with Prana, you know, it was more about purpose built and, and you know, to have freedom of movement and breathability and um, hidden features that you would use that maybe weren't so obvious. Um, it was really thinking about crafting for the experience, crafting for people's endeavors, you know, uh, playing at a high level. You know, we always brought in uh, our athletes, ambassadors, you know, for, for insights, you know, because they were out doing it every day. Uh, so gathering the nectar from from them and, and putting them into product details. Uh, then it became a craft, you know, it became a craft. But um, with Prana, it wasn't about covering your body. You know, our, our mantra was uh, purpose-built uh, designs with hidden techni- technical features and street styling. It was kind of our mantra. It had to look good 
because as as we researched the market, we found out that you know the stuff was functional back then, early '90s uh, when we were looking around, but um, it didn't have a lot of style. You know the right. peg legs and high waist and shiny and noisy, and so we brought more of a street everyday wearability kind of to the designs, but but had the technical ability to get the job done. Right. Right. Did I guess even prior to starting Life's a Beach and Bad Boy Club, did did you have a moment where you recognized, oh, there's I could make product? Like what? I guess what motivated some of those decisions to make something? The need, yeah. you know, the need, uh, especially with Prana, it was just, okay, we're we're climbing now five days a week, and you know, uh, I want a pack that we can literally wear out to a meal, you know, at night and then get up in the morning. And, you know, we had a, a mantra too, that was about sleeping in the train station. You know, if there was one pant that you could live in, that was our, our first pant called the Mojave trouser. And it was trousers to live in. Mm. You could do, you know, work in them, play in them, you know, sleep in them pretty much. If you had one pant, this would be it. And that turned into our Zion through the years with the stretch woven nylon fabric and, you know, more durable technical uh, fibers. But um, it started with the Mojave, our first product. And, and we're jumping kind of a, a little bit ahead, but like when, when you thought of that, like multi-purpose type product, where, where was the industry at that time? Were you, did you feel like companies at that time were creating product for multiple uses or, or was it still very, okay, I have this jacket that I use for this one activity or this pant that I work for this was, did you feel like what you were doing was, was truly new in that way that you were creating product that people could climb in, do yoga in, or, you know, go to go into town with like, was that, did that feel new to you? It felt, it felt new to us. Yeah. Everything was pretty specialized then I have to say. And, um, you know, one anecdote uh, that's super memorable is our, our top climber, Chris Sharma, who was, you know, probably the preeminent climber in the last uh, decades uh, in, the, in the climbing world, um, called when he was 14 years old. And he was wearing another company's apparel already. He was a young, at 13, like people are saying, who is this kid? He's amazing. He called me at 14 and said, hey, you know, I, I want to wear your stuff. I, I have a few pieces and I really like it because... I could wear it to school. And as soon as I get out of school, I can just go bouldering in it or climbing in it and I don't have to change. And the stuff he was wearing, I won't mention the other brand, but his quote was, you know, when I wear that stuff, it makes me feel like I'm on the Star Trek movie set. <laughs> it was, you know, very peg leg, and tight here, you know, very purpose built for climbing, but you wear it anywhere else. And people are like, is that guy a ballerina or a dancer? What, you know, mm. it worked, but uh, it didn't have that crossover. So Chris, one of the, our, our people that, you know, helped us go the distance in a good way, um, right away at that age, recognized that versatility was key for him. Right. So it seems like very, very similar to so many of the, I guess, the, the foundational outdoor companies, right, that we think of in the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s, like you made products that you used, right? You saw a need because you were the one doing the activity and that, in that way, like there's, there's a, a thread tied between your company and, and companies like, you know, Chenard, um, Chenard slash Patagonia, right. Um, among a number of the other companies of that time, you know, the North face of those people who were doing the activities, but, but I think of pa- Patagonia most of all, right. Yvonne making, you know, climbing equipment because he was the one that needed to do it. And then a business sprung from that is um, when did you recognize that, okay, we're making something for us, but there's 
also enough people out here that we could make a career of this or make a business ourselves. What, when did that transition happen for, for you and Pam? Well, it was probably 10 months or so of just designing and making products that worked well for us and our friends, mm. our yoga friends, our climber friends, getting on them, hearing their insights, whatever, and assessing the market and looking around like, okay, well, this is a different market than the action sports industry, which is where Life's the Beach and Bedwood Club came from. Uh, this is the outdoor industry. Let's go to the first trade show and look around. And, you know, we got in and saw the company, saw the landscape of things, met some dealers, handpicked uh, seven dealers to start in, in heavily traveled climbing destinations and said, okay, these are going to be our, our um, beacons, kind of our, our, our place where we're going to put a flag in the ground and met with the owners and said, uh, you know, here's what we're doing. We had seven styles. I remember in all, all the shops, all the, the, the experiences, laying them on the floor, didn't have a rack, nothing fancy, you know, little swatches of fabric. This one will come in blue and yellow and green, whatever, and here, here it is in, in orange. Um, and saying, here's what we got, um, and I can build you guys a rack too out of scrap steel, and I can fit it right in this corner. We can take measurements, and we'll put a little sign on there. And all seven of them said yes, and they happened to be, you know, Smith Rock. There was actually Black Diamond here in Salt Lake. Um, there was a Joshua Tree. Uh, I really traveled climbing destinations where people were coming from all over the world to climb at the time. And the idea was to showcase the brand there. Uh, and so that's what we did. And that's kind of how it started to echo. And, you know, within six months, we had calls from France, from Switzerland, from Germany, different countries. Climbers went through there and said, hey, I bought your products. I like them. I want to now sell them in this country. Can I distribute your products? If, if there is a playbook for the outdoor industry for how to, you know, I don't know if there's any way to crack it, but it, it seems like there's a, a common, um, at least a common thread there where, you make product for the extremists, right? Those people who are pushing it to its limits. And then it starts to get out there to everyone else, right? In a way, right? It's like you make you make the best possible product to, you know, climb the highest peaks. And then the person who just needs a nice jacket to go out and get the mail, right? Or go to work is is going to want the best, right? And and it trickles down. It it seems similar in a way to what to what you did, right? You were focused on those high achievers, those those athletes. And then it it reached the people who were just wanted something for travel, right? Later. But for the first right. five years, our plan was five years of sustained focus only in climbing yoga mm. with the goal of being a household name globally. Mm. in yoga like we didn't we didn't venture out we didn't make button down shirts we didn't do anything to it was always just you know it was a, it was a full circle we had with you know the, the guys wearing the stuff we were hitting all the events you know on the ground in the climbing competitions you know in the yoga studios you know on the mat it was very uh kind of a groundswell and you know deep roots um had a lot of uh you know great storytelling and, and substance to the brand early on where people for the seekers that, that really wanted to go deep, you know, there was, there was things to talk about. Right. Even the name Prana, you know, it's a 5,000 year old Sanskrit word. Mm -hmm. um, not obvious. We had people that would write us letters, countless letters, that, you know, buying our stuff for five and seven years, never even knew what Prana meant. Mm. And then they found out what it meant and it was more meaningful to them. Mm. You know, cause we, it wasn't like a, a billboard, you know, it was, there's discovery. And I think that was an important part of our brand too, as we, we, um, we left a lot uh, of discovery for the consumer uh, to, to find on their own. You know, it wasn't big obvious. Um, so a little, little we'd, we'd leave breadcrumbs, we called it, where people could follow along and um, 
kind of learn more about the brand and get deeper. And that not everyone did. There was maybe three to five percent of the people that were the real seekers that really wanted to know more. You know, we brought in things like sacred geometry into design influence and and, and other things like that that, um, that that grabbed the real influencers. Um, another one of our mantras was influence the influencers. You know, it wasn't trying to cater to the masses, like you just said. Um, well, I mean, you mentioned sacred geometry there. I, I mean, you really started to embed a lot of that in your catalogs, um, and I'm just always amazed by catalogs. And you know, we're we're in that business of preserving um, the history of the industry, mostly print and and catalogs first and foremost. And, and there's one catalog that, in particular, it's it's someone you know in in the middle of a yoga session, and you see that sacred geometry, right? Or you see that spiral and um, I mean, you really did start to embed that um, really in, in those marketing materials. What difference did that make to people? Like, like you said, I mean, the people who get it, get it. And then other people, they see it and think, oh, wow, that's, that's really beautiful or stunning. But well, the thing about sacred geometry is you don't recognize it, but there's, it just feels nice for some reason, mm-hmm. you know, but it's a geometry found in nature. Uh, even some of the catalogs, I'm not sure if you have those ones, but uh, they were built in the geometry 1.618. So one side, one, the long border is 1.618 times the side of this border. And there's just something about that feeling, you know, and if you, if you learn about sacred geometry, that it's found in nature and, you know, countless nautilus shells and butterflies and, you know, so many things are built on that geometry just naturally um, that uh, it was just, it was fun. And it was, it was, for us, it was just intriguing and interesting and, and deep. And, and uh, like I said, there's, a few percent of the people recognized it, but that was enough uh, for us. To, uh, and those people, you know, you were fanatics. Like you, that, that was our, our thing with Prana. Like we had, um, we had some real fanatics for the brand, like a fair amount of people that would really, really love the brand. And they really became the mouthpiece piece for us uh, in sharing, spreading the word about this brand. Uh, and fortunately, they were influential people. So, um, that was uh, important. You know, alignment with values, like when we choose our ambassadors, employees, that was, that was number one, to create a culture that, that gets it, uh, that's not too heady. Still, there's a lot of humility. You know, we, we never preached this stuff. We never said our way was the way, you know, we're, the, we're holier than thou, never that. You know, everyone was welcome, but we, we um, it was kind of a quiet, confidence we had to the brand and you know we we didn't um it was more of a whisper and we earned people one handshake at a time you know it was it was a not a digital era so it literally was meeting people in person at events or in yoga studios or climbing cracks you know one person at a time and that's what our ambassadors did for us people like chris sharma and fred nicole that, that were so aligned with our values they they were the kind of human manifestation of the brand you know, with, with their humility, their enthusiasm for people, their, their thinking, you know, about the good in all things, um, they were the ones we chose to represent our brand. Well, you, you talk about values, and that's, that's a word that we hear all the time now, and, and, and it's like innovation. It's probably lost its meaning in some ways because we hear it so often. What does it actually mean? Um, but I, I, and I, and in our industry, in the outdoor industry, I think especially values is, is talked about. Um, but I, I think the point that, that you made with sacred geometry being embedded in everything and that connection to nature, 
I don't know if any company ever really goes as deep as that, right? To that point, I think I think a lot of companies will spell out here are our values and here's what we do and here are policies that we'll follow or initiatives that, but to embed that so deep into even the marketing material. And it's like everything we produce from a design perspective will adhere to this sacred geometry that ties back to nature, I think is, is kind of another level of, of living your values, if that makes sense. And I don't know if other companies think about it as I know that there's a lot of, you know, intention behind a lot of the companies now that, that, that have great values, but to go as deep as that, that that's got to have an effect on people. Well, thanks. It did on us, you know, and, and the people in the building and the culture and, you know, the, the, the growing audience. So uh, we, it was an echo, you know, like I said, it was a, a pebble in the water and, you know, it wasn't a billboard saying, Here, here's what we do. Here's what we are. People discovered that. And right. well, even our color palettes, you know, we would come back with, you know, uh, a maple leaf that just has the perfect shade of orange. It's just turned for fall, you know, and that would be in the palette. And then there'd be lichen, uh, a lime green lichen on the north side of this rock that we just climbed that would be this ultimate lime green. And you know, our color palette was literally elements of nature that we would go try to, to match and put in textiles. Which seems so different from, I, we, we talked recently with some of the early employees of the North Face. So coming up in the seventies and, and eighties, you know, coming into their own and their color blocks are, you know, that bright red, that yellow, that blue, right? Not not traditionally colors that you do see in nature, and that's not a, a dig against the North Face, but it's a different thought process um, that I think is an interesting contrast. Yeah, and, and we were tuned in and doing things in, in the middle of Prana, like we would we would gather inspiration from from nature and, and just the craziest things. Just come back with, like I said, rocks and this and that, and just like, mm-hmm. oh, here's our palette. Look at how this goes. Here's a cool warm shift we've got. You know, and it was so much fun. Right. Oh, wow. I bet. Yeah, we were grab, you know, just the craziest things and like this. What's and, what's the craziest thing you brought into the office that you saw? Do you remember? Uh, I got Pam would probably <laughs> think of um yeah, I, I can't think of it right now, but I just know it was just a lot of natural elements and things. Right. I mean, I I think there was an old rusted uh there was a, a part of a car that was rusted out in the middle of nowhere. We were climbing or something. Someone drove it off a cliff and the color of the rust on the, you know, the, the door panel was like just a beautiful color. Right. Right. Oh, that's incredible. Um, but I, I think the nineties for the outdoor industry was probably a really interesting time to, to come up. Um, I've got some specific questions about um, I guess that era, but what were the companies that were there companies prior to starting Prana that, that inspired you or you luck, looked up to? I mean, at this point, Prana is kind of coming up in this like s- probably third generation of outdoor companies. You have Ella B and Eddie Bauer, you know, 20s and 30s. Um, yeah. And then, you know, Chenard, Patagonia, or Pat- Patagonia in the North Face, 60s and 70s. Right. Well, and Jerry, I guess you could put Jerry and Holy Bar in there as well. But this is kind of like the third generation of outdoor companies coming up in the 90s. But were, were there companies prior to that that you looked up to or really admired or took inspiration from? Without a doubt, Patagonia, I'd say number one. Um, and there's a long story on how they helped us get into um, creating more sustainable goods. You know, we had the intentions and stuff, but, but we just... Um, adored what they did and, and how they just held the line, you know, no compromise, um, the way they would 
do just the boldest moves and say, you know, we're going to only make organic cotton. I remember when they did that, you know, 20, whatever, five years ago. And their, their products were all of a sudden 20% higher than everybody else's. Mm. They're like, we don't care. You know, we're, this, is, this is what we're doing. So their, their ballsiness, I always respected a ton. Right, right. Um, and how they held the line, no compromise. So they were one for sure. You know, other companies in other industries, um, just because they were at the epicenter of their industry and they represented um, a core consumer and had the respect of that influencer. Um, I, I think we took inspiration from that. You know, Billabong in the early days, uh, surf, surf brand uh, in Australia, um, to say that, you know, you could wear a Billabong shirt to a motocross race or to uh, an art show or to whatever. And when Billabong was it, you, you, you were cool, no matter what. Even though you were wearing a surf shirt to something completely different, that brand represented authenticity. So I think we were inspired by companies like that just to be truly authentic. What, um, I mean, having this company come into its own in the 90s, um, I think of other companies from around this time. I mean, Black Diamond, well, well going from Chenard to, to Black Diamond in 89, Black Diamond really started to, to you know, take off. And then Mountain Hardware. Um, also around that same time, interestingly enough, now, you know, part of the same family under Columbia as, as Prana, but, um, is there any common thread that you see between companies in the outdoor space that, that came of age in the nineties? Is there, is there any parallel there or any similarities between those types of companies? You know, it was, it was a more of a wide open landscape, I think, you know, compared Mm -hmm. to now, like I said, a, a pretty simple playbook of blocking and tackling, you know, having your brand, uh, differentiators and your product differentiators and kind of following your theme. Um, you know, you had the year of the, the outdoor retailers who were thriving at the time. It was a really ripe landscape for, for creating a business with a point of difference. You know, um, there's only with regards to apparel, you know, in outdoor shops, we watched it go from three or four or five racks in the average little store and mostly gear and tents and hard goods to dominating the store with mm-hmm. a pair of products, you know, right. already, we watched a huge transformation there. Right. Um, so I, I think um, the parallel between those companies, you know, people had their, you could, you could put their logo and you understood it was clear. And maybe because it wasn't such a crowded landscape, it was pretty clear on what they stood for, mm. what type of products they made, their price points, who their customer was. Like you, could, you could map them in, in easily. And I think the lines are blurred now. A, little, mm-hmm. a lot more, you know, everyone's uh, companies are doing a lot more categories and they're, you know, they're, they're softening. I call it softening, but they're trying to appeal to a, a wider audience. Now we were all pretty focused on what we were doing. You know, modern hardware is making stuff for, for people doing their expeditions, you know, um, obviously Patagonia, we know what they're up to, you know, and, and ours was, it wasn't, it was yogis and climbers. Right. Period. Right. So pretty narrow. It, it it also seems interesting that right before this this time, right before the '90s, it seems like there's a lot of acquisitions happening too, right? It seems like there's a lot of consolidation. I don't. You probably have more insights into this than I do, but I mean, you had companies like Frostline Kits, right, where you make your own products. I mean, those companies were getting acquired, or the North Face got acquired around that time. Um, it, it just seemed like there was 
at the same time, there's a lot of consolidation. There was a lot of like rebirth, right? And and new ideas and new companies springing out of that consolidation. I don't know if they're directly related, but maybe there was kind of a pushback in the 90s towards starting your own thing again. Could have been. You know, there was other macro trends, you know, um, that, that we got to ride, not early 90s, but but later, you know, the um, women's empowerment uh, mm. side of things, you know, we... Prana, Prana originally was about 80% men and 20% women, the early lines. And then, you know, 10 years later to now, it's 70% women, 30% men, as far as the gender mix on products and product sales. Um, but um, let's see, the point I was going to make there was, um, where's your question again? I got off topic. Well, I guess uh, you were saying that, that Prana kind of rode some of these macro trends. Oh, yeah, the other trends. Um, so women's empowerment, you know, we're in the right spot for there. Um, the outdoor industry, you know, the outdoor industry was blowing up then. We happen to be riding that big wave. We happen to get in at the right time in the right shops and, and ride a really nice wave there. Yoga, you know, yoga apparel didn't exist 30 years ago. We rode, we rode that way. And then the conscious consumer movement, you know, people that were wanted to know where their products are made, what they're made from, who's making them, you know, same with their food, we're, you know, more and more about, being conscious consumers. And we got to ride that way and still are riding that way. And that's really where the big growth came for Prana. You know, we were early on dealing with conscious communities of climbers and yogis. They weren't, they weren't just dumb consumers. These people, you know, started to care about those things early on before everybody else. So that kind of set us up to be able to be in a good position as this big wave of global conscious consumerism kind of came our way. Right. So how far into the company did you realize, okay, we've got something like what, I guess, what were some of those early successes for you? You mentioned working heavily with influencers. I guess we would call them influencers now, but athletes at that time and who went on to influence the influencers, as you said, but um, what were some of those milestones, those early days that really set you up to succeed long-term or set you apart? Well, there was a couple of uh, really important moments. Um, you know, we were running out of the house for the first year and a half, my wife and I, you know, we had a couple of roommates and we slowly moved them out as we, as we needed their bedrooms for inventory. So uh, we were in the house alone, uh, 1260 square foot house and um, stuff everywhere. You know, the garage was a cutting room and I was dying in the washing machines uh, early on, you wow. know, like mixing dyes with powder and chemicals and fixers. And um, Pam was sewing, you know, I did all the cutting for the first probably three years, all the wow. Um, and then we had um, our first sewer was um, Tina Pham. She had a nail shop where uh, a Vietnamese lady where they did people's nails. But in the back, she had three or four sewing machines. So when we outgrew Pam's ability uh, to keep up, we, we would bring stuff down to Tina Pham. And she was sewing for us in San Diego. So super like grassroots homegrown you know, really uh, from the beginning. I feel like that's so different from, I mean, a number of the other stories that I've heard of, of outdoor companies that start in the U S maybe it's a pack that they sell locally, right? Like I think of Jim and Greg with wilderness experience, they're selling packs right in the U S apparel is a whole nother animal, a whole nother challenge. I mean, you don't, you don't, I mean, obviously today we're, we're not really, you can't really find any factories or people who are selling their own clothes. I guess maybe that you were kind of coming out of that era of Frostline kits. People were still sewing patterns together, but I guess it's such a foreign concept to us now that, that people, you could start a company by sewing all the clothes yourself. That's incredible. 
Well, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money at the time, so we were making do with what we what we had and, you know, buying rolls of fabric. Actually, we're doing everything in white. So our snake white fleece was a white uh, fleece that we would buy. And then the cotton lycra was uh, white. And um, we, there was a Palomar dye, a local dye shop, um, was just three miles away from us. So we would build, build batches in white. And then we were very flexible with inventory in lead times. Mm-hmm. So if the store had a good run on blue, we could say, okay, Mike, you know, we need more blue. <laughs> and bring it over in the truck. And, you know, here's 30 pants and 20 of these, da-da-da, and dye them all, and then we get it back. So it was really great for inventory management to make everything in white the first year or so. And, and probably five or six of our products, Momentum Pant, Momentum Short, uh, Women's um, Tornado Top. Um, so that helped. We, we thought about inventory management and having limited capital and so kind of built it uh, built it like that. And it, the neat thing about it, we started doing some really technical, uh, not technical, but technique uh, washes, suede wash and all these really interesting uh, one-of-a-kind dyeing techniques that, that really made each garment one-of-a-kind. Do you feel like by being closer to the process, like you were able to do some of those things that, that were unique, that weren't really being done in the market, you, you had that ability to to experiment? Oh, without a doubt. I, I would, I mean, I'd be up to the middle of the night, like creating the most, the most uh, punchy orange. Like it wasn't fluorescent, of course, but it was, it was still like a natural orange, like nature. And just this, this, uh, just this beautiful, just rich saturated orange. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I was actually mixing the dyes to create these colors. And I remember this competition, uh, rock and roll, they needed 80 shirts for these climbers, you know, climbing, Jim's were just getting going. They said, Hey, would you do the shirts for us? And I said, yeah, I got this amazing color. I'm going to make them for you guys. <laughs> so we printed all these, uh, or dyed all the uh, 80 some orange shirts. And then we had them printed with the logos and all the competitors had them. And it was, it was late and I was running on a fixative. So I, um, I kind of skimped on the fixative to cure the dye. <laughs> so about a week after the competition, we started getting calls from people. Hey, you know, uh, all my laundry is orange now. You know, uh, <laughs> It died all <laughs> and it bled into everybody's clothes. I'm like, oh, what a nightmare. Um, so I, I started to relieve my duties uh, of dying after that. <laughs> Did, were there other moments like that where, maybe not that moment in particular, but early failures where you thought, oh, we're not going to recover from this? Did you have oh, moments like that? Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, our snake bite, we get an order from REI when we're, two years old. Okay. We just moved out of the house and to our first 1300 square foot building. We go show a guy named Bill Owen, wonderful man, still friends with him. He was a buyer at REI climbing department. And we show him our line and he, go, he orders this momentum pants, shorts, the snake bite fleece, which was a tapered fitting fleece designed for climbing gussets of uh, lycra under the arms so you can move freely. And it was nice and, and short. So you it wouldn't get in the way of your gear when you're up on the, the route. Um, and uh, we had a batch for REI, and it was like, this is, this is huge for us. Like, REI, like, we're, you know, we're just taking it so seriously. It was a big uh, opportunity. So we get, um, we made all these snake white fleeces in white, and they all look beautiful. We sent them over to Mike at Palomar Dye, and it was a deep eggplant, like a deep purple eggplant color, a beautiful color. And we get them back, and we pick them up, and we look at them, and we're like, they shrunk super short like unsellable and the, and we're just like, you know, the whole batch, you know, we had no other fabric to recut anything like that. The whole batch was super short wasted. And we're just like, Oh my God, we're going to miss the delivery date. They're going to drop us. We're screwed. You know, this is terrible. So then 
we just had a brainstorm and took cotton lycra sheets, like six or eight foot um, or yard pieces and dyed them the same color, got them to match pretty close, cut the lycra in about four or five inch bands like this and sewed it on the bottom of the snake bite fleeces where they were short. Mm. And said, basically that tucks in your, it tucks in your uh, harness now. And, you know, it actually works better. Wow. It doesn't look as good on the street, but in for p- pure climbing, it worked better. So we, we patched it up, made the delivery date, and, and uh, the rest is history. We sold REI for the 28 years after that. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. But it was a big scare for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We scrambled and uh, pulled it off. So. Wow. There's many um, of those. You know, we had, we had literally a million dollars worth of inventory come into our warehouse, um, women's yoga pants. And this is the same issue that um, the folks at Lululemon had mm-hmm. like six or eight, 10 years ago. Uh, it was a big thing with the pilling because we had the mm-hmm. same fabric as them made by the same manufacturer. And um, huge batch cans and palace and palace and truck loads of, it's spring now. We're getting ready to deliver all these yoga pants. And uh, so Pam grabbed a pair just to test. We're on our way to Joshua Tree. We go climbing. And before she even starts climbing, they're pilling where the legs are touching and, you know, where seatbelt was driving there. We're like, wait a minute. We called production. Hold on a second. There's a problem with this stuff. We found out it was over peached. So, you know, peaching is a process where you're, you're sanding the fibers lightly to give it a softer hand. Mm. It was over peached and it broke down the fibers to where they immediately started pilling on the first wearing. Wow. So it was a major, major mistake. We had to fly over there and, and settle with the guys and see who was accountable. We kind of shared accountability in it. But one thing at Prana, our mantra for product was, if it stays in our building, it's a small problem. Even if it's a million dollars on pallets, a brand new product we just paid for, it's a small problem because we kept it in the building. We never let it leave the building. Didn't let it get out in the stores. Didn't get, you know, lose all these customers. We've earned their trust over the years. So we, basically I came up with a, in a day, a, a new brand called Tantra. And we made a new label, got the trademark going, and we paid local sewers to take every label, every kind of label off the garments. There was two on each of these garments, thousands and thousands of garments, and put the Tantra label on there. So they weren't Prana goods anymore. And we sold it to TJ Maxx and Marshalls, Mm. you know, for cost, got some cost out of it, negotiated with the vendor. And then we called all our dealers, told them the truth and said, it's going to be 90 days till we can deliver. You wanted it in March. No, really sorry. You're not going to be getting it until May, June. Uh, and they were all cool with it. Um, we just got beat because then we delivered the product. It was right. But that's a huge lesson for people in, in school here with product. You know, don't let it leave the building. Mm. Um, it was really important. It was a big setback. No doubt. You know, we're, we're hoping to, we lost all those terms too, because those people would have been delivered all those dealers in March. We'd probably got reorders in you know, April, May, June. We lost all those terms. So it was a big, it was millions of dollars. It cost us in the short run, but it saved our reputation in the long run. Wow. Well, uh, there's probably not any Tantra product out there. All <laughs> right. You probably can't find any of that on, on eBay. Can you <laughs> no. floating around? It, it worked though, you know, because, <laughs> It didn't tarnish our name, but we got our right. cost of it. And, you know, some person was happy because they probably bought a $80 yoga pan for 20 Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Oh, that's great. Um, how, what was it like um, being in the outdoor industry during, I mean, 
the dot-com era and that transition. Um, I mean, you saw monumental changes in how product is, is sold, right? Um, that affect us to this day. And I, I you know, I, I've been talking, I talked to one of the co-founders of, of Mountain Hardware, Al Tabor, and he was kind of the 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 uh, IT guy at the time, and it, and as having that person as your as a co-founder was unique, right? Like having someone who knows the technology. I mean, that's just standard today. Um, but what what was that transition time like for Prana, um, kind of coming into this new era of e-commerce? Well, the the name Prana.com or the the URL Prana.com was owned by a doctor in Japan. Mm. So we, we wanted to get it. And so we negotiated with them and bought it. I think it was five or 10 grand, which at that time was a lot of money for us. And we said, well, we, you know, this is happening. We need to be there. So we, we, we got it early on uh, with no conflict and um, slowly built our business. And uh, like I said, everything was done, you know, analog before, like everybody else, we were at events, we were, you know, meeting people were in store. It was just very hands-on. And, and all of a sudden this, this way to accelerate the business came up. And um, fortunately we had a good graphic guy, uh, James Gilbert did great work for us for 25 years. And um, we were, we had a nice website and a nice presence pretty early on and started to have some web sales. Uh, it was averaging six to 8% of our sales. I think as we went along until uh, 2010, when some big changes came and we, we really got into the, catalog slash web business. And, and now it is, I think, direct to consumers, 45% of Prana's business. Wow. What year did you say you, you launched that website? I'd have to say it was 90. I'm thinking about the building we're in because I remember some of the conversations. I'm thinking 97. Six. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Is it, what do you attribute that to? I mean, just being... Thinking well, well, so forward thinking on that. Well, our first employee, Damien, wasn't wasn't quite an IT guy, but he he loved technology and he loved that. So he was he pushed for that. Wow. You know, I was the complete opposite. Hmm. Uh, I loved when our computer systems went down because I said, "Great, we can finally get some work done around here." Yeah. You know, everyone was always just so focused on the computers, but I, you know, I was like a caveman. And as the business, you know, evolved, I was like the old guy who was holding it down to like human touch live experience, live conversations, you know, tactile feeling stuff and um, talking to people and, you know, and um, everyone else wanted to move on. So I was kind of the old dog in the building, but, you know, we had our tensions that were healthy. Right. right. So Damien, Damien led that up. He, he saw the opportunity said, Hey, we're selling in nine countries already. And just think, you know, we can go global now. And, and then we had a set up in um, France with a little warehouse where we could service the U- European union. Um, with talk to consumer. So some, some kind of big thinking early on. How did you learn a lot of this? I mean, this is like the same challenge as many founders, right? Like you, you start a company and then you just have to figure a lot of things out. Like how did, how did you figure out how to work with the factory or, you know, you know, learn the nuances of global trade and, you know, all of that, like it was just a learning process, but did you have any mentors or anyone who helped guide you along the way? You mentioned Patagonia being a, a, an influence, but who helped you figure out how to do some of these things? Or did you and Pam just figure it out yourselves? It was pretty much winging it, you know, winging it and, um, you know, creating relationships, you know, relationships, building trust. Uh, it was with a bank or a distributor overseas or, you know, a vendor um, doing what you say you were going to do, you know, delivering on your promises and, and building trust. And I think 
people will take risk with you when you when you earn that trust with them. Um, so in so many respects, um, I think that had a lot to do with just just being honest and open with people and and, be, and being humble and saying, you know, I don't know. Um, can you help me with this? And usually people, when you're honest like that, want to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was a big part of our culture too, is, you know, we didn't, we didn't really blow smoke, you know, where there wasn't a whole lot of BS going on in the eighties there was, and I came from other businesses like that. And with Prana, you know, the culture was just like, if someone says it'll be there at three o'clock on Thursday, it's there at three o'clock on Thursday. Right. Um, right. Whether it be a vendor payment, whether it be, you know, a distributor order, whatever it is, um, there was a lot of integrity through the entire organization. I think it really served as well. Right. But you, you mentioned this earlier, but, you know, was it hard to be open to maybe rethinking slightly what the company was or who it was for? You mentioned that moment of bringing um, climbing and yoga into one catalog. Is that right? Were, were they separate before and you had to bring them together? Um, and then later on adding travel, like were those hard moments for you or was it pretty natural to say, Oh no, this is who we are. This is where we're going. Did, did you ever, ever have any moments where you felt like, um, is this really who we are? I, what was that like for you when these big moments came where you needed to, when you kind of open, open things up more? Yeah. I don't think we ever had the moments that is this really who we are. We, we felt really good about where we were because it was authentic to us. It was just mm-hmm. really around our lives and there was no facades. There was, you know, it was just, this is who we are. Um, so that honesty and authenticity, I think, was there. Um, the catalogs, uh, we were worried a little bit about turning off our consumers. So we had these yogis and then we had these climbers and they were similar in many, many ways, but also different in many mm-hmm. ways. So as we were having these separate catalogs, the first probably five or six years, um, we would slowly start to infuse a little climbing in the yoga catalog and vice versa. Then we started to go to events where climbing events, we would put on the yoga class in the morning for everyone to stretch and do some yoga before competing and climbing. And then we would go to um, Wanderlust and these different yoga events and put on a climbing clinic where we take people climbing. And so we started to cross pollinate the two. And then all of a sudden, you know, it just felt so natural. We just started seeing more and more signals and more people doing both activities and ambassadors that were proficient in both spreading the word. And it just kind of felt like, okay, now's the time. Like uh, we've kind of assessed the risk. We've warmed people up to it. And, and here you go. Here's the catalog. And since then, every catalog has had yoga and climbing. In it. I think, I think you and Kenji talked about this in, in a prior interview, but um, the number of climbing gyms that also have yoga studios in them. It's the majority, right? Um, Do you feel like Prana had a hand in that or influenced the direction of these two groups coming together? I mean, was that, do you feel like that was Prana? You were the one that brought those groups together? I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. Um, I'd say that because we were influential brand at the time, we probably had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. You know, other, other factors coming together, but you know, when we look back on it, like, like I said with Kenji, you know, there's rarely a climbing gym being built right. that doesn't offer yoga. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I bet. I, I, well, if you're not going to say it, I'll, I'll say it. it. It was you, right? You, you did it. it. It seems like it, right? At least you nudged it in that direction. Yeah. Um, it, was there a similar, how, how did travel come about then? 
I mean, because it, it doesn't sound like the company ever forced anything like, oh, well, travel's a big business. We need to shoehorn ourselves into travel. It seems like everything can't, you let that come naturally to you. So was that a similar experience when, when the company started to become, a, you know, a yoga climbing travel company? Uh, it, it was, and that all became because of the product, you know, we started to, you know, use these, these stretch wovens that wouldn't wrinkle that you didn't need to wash for a week that you right. know, were indestructible. Um, and, and even in our, our shirts, you know, we we're using organic cotton at the time, but we said, you know, let's put 10 or 20% poly in there because it helps with wrinkle resistance. You know, let's, let's, um, put a little stretch in there for this, that if you're sitting on an airplane, you know, so it was, was the, it was a product naturally worked for her travel. So it opened the door for us. And then, you know, people like REI that it had many different departments, most outdoor retailers, smaller guys just had their floor and they had their different clothes, but you know, the bigger, more sophisticated retailers like REI had a travel department. Mm-hmm. And then guys would say, Hey, you know what, this pant and this and this, let's, let's create a collection for, for these guys. We're in their sportswear section. We're in their climbing section. Um, so the REI, REI did a lot for us with regards to um, helping structure our lines and, and delineate the, the differences and kind of focus collections. Hmm. And REI was, has been nothing. You know, we won the REI Vendor of the Year a couple times, and, and that's a, it's, it's a really wonderful award. You know, they're, they're kind of the, the real pros. They're, they know what they're doing in the industry, obviously. And, I remember, I think it was 2004 when we won the overall REI vendor of the year. Sally Jewell was the CEO and uh, 15 of the top 1500 vendors that they sell to were in the room, five in each category, you know, apparel, hard goods. I forgot the other one, but um, Sally got got up and spoke in front of us all. And, you know, great companies were in the room. Uh, the Black Diamonds of the World and Patagonia's and you know, the most respected companies were in there because mm-hmm. Sally said, "You're all in this room because you're incredible vendors to us. Your 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 services, you know, uh, top notch. Uh, your products sell. Your sustainability initiatives. Your your social issues. You know, all the all the soft tissue parts of brands. You know, you guys are in here because you're all great at that." Prana is the overall winner of the REI Vendor of the Year this year because they took us places we never thought we could go. Mm. And that was Pam always pushing the edge on women's design. Yes, it had the function, but we were doing, you know, sublimated women's stretch tops that, you know, in yoga with a, a beautiful mandala, you know, from it was drawn 2000 years ago that, you know, we brought to life with colors from nature and, and just, just push the envelope, you know, printed women's tops and you know she had stretch women's bell-bottom jeans in REI like you know Sally Jewell was wearing she talked about it prana jeans you know at the at the announcement of, of the award winner so she says in the versatility you know I'm wearing it I'm you know whatever 60 years old and and my daughter wears it she's 22 you know prana has a real breath uh, as far as age um, being attracted to the different ages right so she brought up those points and that was, that was a huge thing for us and, and for Pam because she would sit with the buyers and, and many times, you know, that's the problem with some of these big stores is you have to get to get to the consumers. You have to get over the hurdle of the buyers mm-hmm. and the buyers are not necessarily super fit or climbers or yogis and maybe, you know, they don't get it in, in many cases, but they're looking at numbers and spreadsheets and merchandising reports and, and they're the ones doing the buying. Mm-hmm. So Pam had to push them. 
She had to say, you know, try this. Trust me. Let's try a few racks and just, oh, there's the dogs. <laughs> um, so with REI, you know, my wife, Pam, had to really push them to, um, to get them to take chances. And we did it in small doses. We said, let's, let's try it in six stores and just these racks and see what happens. And I said, wow, it's good. Let's go to 18 stores. Let's go to 32 stores. So <clears throat> pushing the edge of design with regards to um, style, but always covering the bases with function is really what, what got us our big growth with REI. Right. Well, how does it, I mean, you've probably reflected on this plenty, but being athleisure before athleisure, right? And, and, and I think athleisure can have a negative, a negative connotation in some ways, but being athleisure in that you are wearing something that is multifunctional, right? That you could perform in or go around town, like, how does that feel now looking at in retrospect at like where the industry now and how far ahead you were when you started? Yeah. I mean, we, we're amongst a bunch of others, you know, doing thinking similarly. Yeah. Uh, so the product led it because the product worked for that. And, you know, if we go back to our original mantra, you know, it had to be street smart styling. Right. So right. it kind of, it kind of worked to, to be a product that you wear every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the, as the company grows, I mean, obviously you get to a point where I'm, I am jumping ahead a little bit here to a point where the company sells in 2014. Um, was there a moment ever when you looked, you and Pam looked at each other and said, wow, like how, look how far this has come. Like we could never have imagined that we got to this point. Right. Like, was there a moment even before the sale where you had some of those moments where you just said, wow, we have this many employees, like there's these people counting on us. How did we do this? Like, how did we get here? Like, when did some of those moments happen? Uh, there was a bunch of them. So um, not sure if you have any records, but we sold back in 2005. To, oh, no. Yeah. So this is a very interesting story. So um, we we're going, what, 12, 13 years, uh, never took in a penny of investment. Uh, we did not want to compromise the ideals of the business and be put on a treadmill to grow. Mm. We said, no, we're going to grow this thing pure and organically. When people want it, we're not going to force feed it. We didn't have sales reps. You know, we, um, it was all just one store telling another. Uh, and we put all our, our money, instead of paying 10% of the reps, we focused on the end consumer and create a, a pull strategy, like a vacuum in the stores to where dealers literally countless times would come up to outdoor retailer show and say, all my employees and all my customers are saying, I got to have this Prana brand, so show me what you got. And we were like elbow each other and, you know, our partner Damien and, and Pam and I, our first employee, because it came full circle and the vacuum was created. So what would happen, we'd, we'd build an order for them, we'd ship it to them. The employees would call the key customers that have been waiting for it and the employees, and the, it would evaporate. And the guy would call us the same day, he just got four boxes, he's got a half a box left and create a reorder. And then he would tell the other stores in other territories you know, that weren't competitive what went on. So that's, that was our, that was kind of the mouthpiece for the brand on a wholesale level, um, this, this pull strategy. And that we did it because um, for, for one in the eighties, we had enough reps and I, I, I wasn't, um, I didn't like the loss in translation with a rep showing up that had four other lines and they're rushing through. So we said, let's wait till we have the demand. We didn't have the pressure of investors to grow. We could just grow very organically. We lived very lean and mean. You know, Prana was a 
super lean ship. Um, we had no fancy anything. My desk for five years was a piece of plywood with two sawhorses on it mm-hmm. in the warehouse because I gave the employees, you know, a better place to sit. And Pam and I would, you know, give up our spots and we paid our employees. Our first five years, we, we didn't really pay ourselves much except just what we needed to live because we knew if we kept that money in the business, in 90 days, we can turn that money and triple it and triple it, you know. Right. So, so that's how we cash flowed it. You know, we put our house on the line for a, um, uh, a bank loan. Um, we said, okay, here's our house as collateral. We need a loan. Uh, we got trade credit by building trust with our vendors, you know, paying them on time. They said, we need to check by here. We made sure it was delivered on that date. Um, we started to get, grow internationally. Some of our distributors paid uh, us money up front for their orders, which helped us cash flow. So we pieced it together and built it from zero. First year in the house doing 360000 to $30 million in 2005. Wow. So uh, 12 and a half years um, with, with a 21% EBITDA. So highly profitable for the apparel business um, in turning that money. But then we started so getting to the acquisition thing. So we started to say, okay, everything we own is in these four walls. We have no personal net worth. Um, it's a lot of stress on the nervous system day and night. You know, we've got 30, 40 employees. And, and we were running out of our um, expertise in this business. We need, we need some retail expertise. We need back of the house. You know, we just need help. We need a big brother. So we started to look at people that um, we could do a deal with to where they could acquire a portion of the company, but we could stay on. And we didn't want to, you know, stop at all. We love what we were doing. It's too much of, of our lives. And so we looked around and, we, you know, we sat with Timberland. We sent, sat with Nike, uh, Patagonia. Hmm. Um, three uh, VC firms, and we had five offers um, after a couple months. A banker was helping us, and our banker said to us, "Wait a minute, before you guys, you know, let me throw another person, another company in the mix. Is Liz Claiborne a company out of New York, a five billion dollar garment company in New York?" And we're like, "Liz Claiborne, like, why?" And he said, "Just listen to them and talk to them." So the CFO flew in with a gal named Angela Aaron's, who. Um, incredible lady. Pam and I sat with them for about three hours and they blew our minds with the opportunities. First of all, their design resources, they had high rise buildings with floors dedicated to like sixties paisleys and stripes, you know, seventies so much uh, design influence and color uh, theme um, programs they had. And Pam was just frothing at the mouth because her design team could just be like, you know, it's just incredible the resources they had for design. And then they had retail expertise. You know, they owned uh, Lucky Jeans, Juicy Couture, some other brands that had big retail plays. Um, they had that, obviously, all the back of the house stuff they had. One thing they didn't have was any sustainability stuff, which we were working on. So mm-hmm. we, kind of, we kind of helped them with that with the, some of their other brands for a couple of years. So we did a deal with them. It was the fourth highest of the offers we had, but we mm-hmm. sold Sixty uh, percent of our business to Liz Claiborne, hmm. and Pam and I and uh, our employees hung on to forty percent uh, in the form of an earnout over five years. So we could still have this big brother, so to speak, and do what we love, but to have these great resources uh, to really help the brand realize its potential. So we did that deal, and then within six months, um, the Liz Claiborne started tail spinning their stock. For other reasons, JCPenney and other brands they were selling to uh, started to tank. And so they were in trouble financially. And so they had to sell, put us up for sale. 
And uh, we we're just like, wow, we're just getting integrated. You know, a, a $30 million homegrown business with a $5 billion, you know, giant governmental public company just getting integrated. And they, the CEO called me and my heart just dropped. And he says, we got to put you up for sale. I ran in our, our CFO's office and grabbed the agreement, which is about this thick, uh, the sale agreement. And on page like 197, I found out that if they put us up for sale, we had the right to buy it back first, first refusal. Mm. So they honored that. And so they made us a great deal. We bought it back for a lot less than they paid for it. Mm. And they threw in software and employee bonuses and really took care of us because they felt like they took this little mom and pop company and put it in their blender and stirred it up and spit it out. So they felt obligated to get us back on track. And they were really great people um, to, to, to be uh, honest. You know, when, when you think about public companies and the pressure they have, but they, they saw it through uh, and really took care of us. So we're on our own again. We bought it back hmm. uh, just less than two years later. It was that one of those moments where you, it hits you. I think about this. I've never been a business owner myself, but I think of the pressure of, you know, it's not just your livelihood that, you know, you're, you're depending on that, like to, to live, like it, everything you put in, you're trying to get something out so you can live, live and survive. But You've got, I don't know how many employees you had at the time, but, um, you know, 20, 30, 40, a hundred employees. I mean, when you have that many people relying on you and families and like, was that a moment for you where you're like, oh, wow. Like what we do matters. I'm sure you had that moment beforehand, but oh, absolutely. You know, every day it was, it was like a family, you know, many hand-me-down cars and refrigerators and, you know, house payments. And, you know, we, it was like a family. We took care of our people. You know, we made, um, uh, in the end, um, our, our core employees came out really, really well right. uh, financially. You know, they, they stayed with us. And our first employee was with us 22 years, you know, Damien. He was helping me in the garage cutting. Wow. After doing job interviews out of college, after two months, 16 different interviews, he, he sat with me at 11 o'clock at night. And he said, you know, I've been in 16 different interviews and all these companies putting my suit on. And I'm here in the garage with you and Pam and the dogs. And this is my career. This is what I'm going to do. I said, really, you want to work here? Because he yeah, I'm done interviewing. And 22 years later, and you know, he's a multimillionaire now. He started at seven bucks an hour sleeping in the warehouse uh, for a couple of years. Wow. Jeez. Well, what, what changed after the, um, that experience with the sale and then buying it back? What, what changed after that um, for the company? For us inside. So the company never changed. We were super focused right. on the brand, especially because a $5 billion company just bought our company. So I'm like deep into climbing, deep into yoga, throwing anchors the other way purposely to really not give up the range and, you know, soften up or, you know, they never told us what to design or what to make or who to sell. They were, we were autonomous. We we're on our own doing our own thing. But I was very conscious of the audience these core consumers going, ah, Prana sold out. Mm. So I wanted to show them that, you know, we're digging deeper. We are, we are entrenching even deeper in, into the core audience, investing in the community. So we threw a lot of anchors that way. What happened, there's a big shift for us to say, okay, we've got a little bit of um, net worth now personal, you know, after these years of hanging, hanging out, credit cards buried, you know, just getting cash flowing business was everything. You know, no vacations, not nothing. Like all the money was always in the business for those years. So we had a little breathing room because Liz Claiborne paid us more um, than we, uh, 
bought it for more than we bought it back for. So we had a little cushion. We said, let's take in private equity now with expertise, somebody that, that can help us strategically. So we found a local guy. They found us actually in Solana Beach, California, uh, Steel Point Capital, had a lunch with them and, and we said, let's do this. So we bought, when we bought the company back, they owned majority of them. So they bought it back you know, we sold it for 54. We bought it back for 37 million. We put in 10 million and Steel Point put in 27 million. Mm. So they were majority owners. They could, two of us were on the board and three from Steel Point. We had a great relationship with them. They weren't in the garment business, but they were good strategic thinkers. And our goal was to scale the business from then it was 34 million to 100 million in five years. And that was a difficult moment for me because I raised my hand in the meeting. And I said, I'm not the guy to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a brand guy. I'm a culture guy. I'm not an operations guy that can scale from 30 some to a hundred million in five years. That's a different kind of mind. And I think it's important for entrepreneurs. It's a really great lesson to know when to pass the baton. Mm-hmm. Know when you, you know, you're out of your comfort zone, you're out of your, your skill set. And be able to say, you know what, here you go. I'll flank you. I'll support you. Let's do this. And so we did. We hired um, a guy named Scott Kerslake, who started Athleta, the women's line Athleta, Hmm. founder. And uh, he really knew the direct-to-consumer business, which was a big growth opportunity for us. Um, He was deep in the catalog business. And so um, that was a big shift. 2010, uh, Scott came on and we we shifted. And that's when our trend went from 8 or 10% direct-to-consumer to almost 50 percent direct to consumer. Wow. And from 2010, that leads you to 2014 where. Yeah. So 2014, um, you know, we had a board meeting and Jim, our, our uh, chairman uh, from steel Point, said, guys, the market right now is so right. You know, we've had people knocking on the door from, from big companies showing up literally saying, we want to buy your company. Um, a handful of people sitting with Pam and I we're like, Oh, we're not ready yet. You know, we're, we're marching along this plan on, on target. You know, we went from 35 to 45 to 62 to uh, 82 to 99 million in five years. We hit it. We hit the targets and all these people want to buy it. And, and um, the market was flush with cash. And we said, we got to go to market. Like the VC uh, steel point loved the brand and they didn't want to sell it. But the, you know, Jim says beef I've been around when the, when markets is hot and your brand has got all these bars moving up and right sales, profitability, you know, it's looking like this is a beautiful picture right now. You got to go to market. So we went, to, we hired a Baird as a banking a firm. We interviewed three different firms. They won the job and they, they went to market. And um, we had uh, eight, eight offers originally, then it got down to three. Columbia was in the mix there. And even Steel Point said, you know, it's not about the highest price here. Like we love this brand and we know it has potential. And we're not going to just sell it to the highest bidder. And that's what they do. So that's what VCs do. They buy small and sell high. Yeah. But these guys had a conscience. And they know we did. And we didn't want our, our little baby going to somebody that's just going to, you know, pour it out. So we had some criteria. Um, whoever we sold to had to have the resources to help the brand realize its potential. They had to have a respect for the culture and the direction of the brand to not make a hard left turn as soon as they bought it. You know, keep things intact, keep the values, keep, keep these principles and a special culture that we built intact. And then third was price. And mm-hmm. so Columbia stepped up and rang all three bells. And we said, you know, what an honor to be with a company like Columbia, who for 
what, 60, 70 years now, has done such an incredible job. It's a different brand than ours, but as far as business people, ethical business people, the way they run their companies, you know, we, we flanked them in the outdoor industry for all those years and we saw what they did. We saw the amazing things they could do with a, a value type of brand and the doors they could open and the, you know, the things they did for the dealers. So um, we, we were honored that they were the ones that, that won it, so to speak, and, and to be under their umbrella. You know, it was a, a really Cinderella story for us. Well, I, I think it's interesting. You mentioned, I mean, just like the, those criteria that you, you needed that company to hit. Um, and I, I just wonder if it, it's, it feels different now with some, some current events going on with, with a company like Eagle Creek kind of being phased out. I mean, is that, I, I imagine that's kind of your worst can, case scenario, right? As, as someone looking to sell is, you know, you want to make sure that Columbia doesn't phase phase the company out in 10 years, 20 years, you know, you hope it, it lives on is, yeah, is that would, different with, with that context? Yeah, it would hurt for sure. It would hurt. And so for us to, to see the brand realize its potential, you know, we're, like I said, we're honored and uh, it was a very, very happy ending for us and our, our key employees and partners. Right. Did we, did you stay on after that time or, or kind of transition out over a, a year or two? So because the VC was in control, they didn't want any kind of earn out. They wanted a, a cash deal up front done. Uh, so that's the way it was for everyone. Mm. Um, and Pam and I chose, you know, kind of to, we, we had a good run. Um, and, you know, it, it ended on a great note. Uh, and we decided to, to bow out. And, you know, we, we still, like I said, we're still helping the design team. I'm, I'm working on an award for a key employee that's been there 18 years uh, last night. So we're, we're still, you know, we're welcome with the business. We're, we're friends with everybody there. Um, and uh, I still get my mail there. You know, my climbing boulder is still there in the, in the, in the yard. Um, so we're, we're tight with everyone at the company, but we have no employment uh, agreements there at all. Right. So what is, what does that next chapter look like for you? I mean, you've, you've been, you know, away from the company for a few years now. I, I look at some of the other um, founders of outdoor companies um, in the industry. Um, I mean, people like Jerry and Ann Cunningham on, from one perspective, I mean, they sold their company in the seventies and then Jerry went sailing. Right. And, and they built domes, you know, kind of around the country and had their, their different houses and, and did that, that sort of thing um, and enjoyed their time and, and spent time out outside. And then on, on the, the flip side, you have someone like Jim and Greg who they sell wilderness experience and, and then go and work for Nike, Adidas, VF Corporation, and kind of have a whole second career. Um, it sounds like you're doing a little bit of both. Um, what, what is the second, I guess, the second stage of your, um, I, I guess, career, I guess you'd say it look like for you. I know you're doing a lot to give back with Outdoor Foundation, um, you know, involved in some other companies. You know, when you and Pam, you know, stepped aside from from Columbia, what did you want your life to look like after that? Great question. So, um, well, first of all, for me, it took about two years um, to um, wean myself off of Prana mm. because there was so much. Pam, a little, little less because she hired a design director and was kind of um, stepping back a little bit as far as her duties. So she was slowly weaning off. But it was so much of our life and so built around our lives and so much of our identity mm. that it was, it was very difficult to, um, all of a sudden it was gone. You know, it was there, but it wasn't ours. So we're here and, you know, it was hard. 
it was emotionally hard. And um, so, you know, I kept my fingers in a little bit here and it helped other to transition, you know, through the year, about a year or so, then, then slowly wean myself off it. And um, it was difficult. And now it's great. You know, it's, it's seven years. It's been 2014 in May uh, is when the deal went down. Um, so we have, you got to reinvent yourself kind of because, you know, your, your consciousness day and night is when you have a baby that you create, it's, it's, you know, that's, you're engaged, whether you are sleeping or awake or whatever you're doing, you're always engaged uh, in it. So um, that was hard, but um, feeling good about it now. And, you know, I've been on the Outdoor Foundation board uh, 12 and a half years um, and uh, st still rolling with that. That's really meaningful work, but really I, I dove in. So Tim Boyle, I said, Tim, I might want to start something, a nonprofit. And Tim Boyle, the CEO of Columbia, said, Beeb, whatever you want to do, I will match it. And, yeah, I even have a 501c3 here we can use. And, you know, if you want to focus on giving back a nonprofit, I'll, I'll, I'll help you with that. So I did some, you know, I've been involved in the Access Fund and Conservation Alliance, you know, different different um, funds also. And it always seems to be you're, you're chasing your fundraising, you know, those things. And it's kind of a grind. And the more I looked into it, I said, you know what, um, it, it's, it seems like a real grind. Um, and I don't, I hate asking people for money. Like I'm so bad at it, you know? Um, so I just started mentoring entrepreneurs, um, and kind of put the word out and, you know, I never said no to anyone and never charged a penny. And it's just basically, I give people everything I have, every bit of experience and intelligence and anything I possibly give them in that time that I have with them. If it's one hour, I will just give them everything I got. It's relative to their business for that one hour. But my thing is I shake hands, good luck. You know, I, I let, let it go because I'm kind of a nut and I carry stuff, you know, can't sleep at night and write down a million notes every night, still do. Um, so I didn't want that on my nervous system, all these businesses, you know, investments and this and that. And I'll give you stock and this, I've never taken stock, never taken anything because I just wanted to be free from it. But when I drop in, again, I'll bring you everything I got but I'm going to drop out mm. you know, and let it go. So for me, it's, it's healthier uh, to do it that way. So that's really where I spend a lot of my time um, with little businesses and all kinds of consumer products, even some service businesses and um, things I don't know anything about. But every once in a while, there's a few nuggets that I could share from our business experience that bring value, hopefully. Um, and Pam's doing some nonprofit stuff too, Rancho Santa Fe uh, Women's um, Foundation for uh, um, abused and underprivileged uh, girls. And uh, that stuff feels good. And then I'm on a handful of boards too, company boards. Right. Um, Chris Sharma's Climbing Gyms, uh, just opening our third gym in, in Spain. Um, you know, one of our key athletes and dear friends. Um, so there was a, just two days ago, I had a two-hour board call with that. So just trying to, you know, you use all the hard-earned lessons that I've uh, got through the years and, and share them with people that, you know, hopefully it brings value. And it, that, that feels good, you know, right. because financially we're okay. And I think when there's, when there's no financial connection and no exchange like that, it's just pure giving. It just feels good just to say here, you know, and I don't, you know, every once in a while someone will send me a belt or a pair of shoes or whatever, but that's it. Like there's no connection. Right. Um, and it just feels, it feels good to just say, you know, I, I've been fortunate in my career to have these experiences and, and be successful. And um, if I can help you, I feel good about that. Well, I, I, 
where do you think you learned how to be so self-aware about what fulfills you? Um, were you always good at that? Was that the, the, you know, meditation that taught you that? Like, where did you learn how to learn what fulfilled you? I mean, some of that you just learn over the course of life, but, but it seems like you've been able to, to, to find that throughout your career, whether you were, you know, building prana at the peak or now in the stage you're at now. Uh, self-reflection, you know, through meditation, I think is, is important. And, um, getting, getting higher altitude, you know, getting out of the world that you're in. And, you know, I do get to fly airplanes. And for me, you know, when you're above the world and all those little problems are, and issues are, are small because you got to keep this piece of metal up in the air. It's <laughs> kind of priority right now. Yeah. Um, so just, just separating from the busyness and the day to day and the busy mind and, and getting high altitude and looking down on it and looking at the, you know, the macro view of things and, and all the things happening and how you can get caught up and, you know, taking down these, just change your states and getting caught in these rabbit holes and stuff. And just, I think just elevating, you know, if that's the word is just elevating, breathing, you know, it's all going to be fine no matter what happens today or whatever, just long, looking at the long-term uh, view of things. That's great. Beaver, I think that's a, probably the best possible note to end this on, unless we missed something. I don't know if we we missed anything, but um, I think that's a, a great message to leave this on. Um, but I, I just appreciate you taking the time. This has been a fun conversation. I've learned so much. Um, it's just it's amazing to hear your story, your your story with Pam, and and what you've been able to build together. So, well, thanks for taking the time. This has been great. Yeah, it was a pleasure and uh, great questions and. What a great cause, uh, you know, you guys have going there. It's, it's really, really exciting. One day I do want to visit and, and check it out in, 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 in real life. Um, but congratulations on what you're doing. Oh, thank you. You're definitely welcome anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.